Church, open your Bibles. We are back in the book of 1 Corinthians again. I'm excited after a two-week break to be back there. And I certainly want to recognize that last week we had a number of people that returned to church on Easter Sunday for the first time uh, back for many people in almost a year. So I want to just recognize the great time we had last week. But we're back into the series in 1 Corinthians that I've called Untangled. And Paul is addressing uh, issues in the church that have tangled the church up. And he said, let me help you to untangle those issues that are wrong thinking in your minds or perhaps wrong actions in your lifestyle. And we're going to address some of those things. I want to take you all the way back to week one where we were in our introduction because there are five major themes that Paul wants to cover with the church. And uh, there are five themes that we're obviously going to see that uh, unfold within the book. Here they are. The five big topics in 1 Corinthians are rivalries. You remember we had weeks on end in which we talked about the rivalries in the church and why Paul said that was detrimental. Uh, Sexuality and marriage is the section that we're in right now, and we'll continue in that for a number of weeks. We'll move into food and idols, and then worship practices, and finally, resurrection. And I think many of you know that this is a longer series that we're in. We're going to continue in this series through all the way into, into August. We'll take a number of breaks for graduations and Mother's Day and some of those other things that come along, but we're going to be in this now for quite some time. Let me also remind you before we read this section, a couple of things that you need to know that I think will tune you in to what Paul's discussing with the church. You remember that Corinth was a hotbed for sexual promiscuity. It was a port, it was a city uh, that had two ports on it, so a lot of commerce was obviously traveling through it all the time. It was a cosmopolitan city, so lots of people were coming to the city. And if you remember from week one, we talked about this spot, which was the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite, the goddess of love, had a temple that was very prominent in Corinth, and there were said to be a thousand temple prostitutes that came from that temple into the city to ply their trades and actually invite people into quote-unquote worship. And so that was one of the things that Corinth was known for, and that was one of the things that was kind of happening there. Maybe this is a good image in your head. Corinth is kind of like Las Vegas and Free Love West Coast all mixed together, and I'm sure that they are the ones that brought up the phrase, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. I mean, that, that probably originated there. And of course, we all know that's really a lie. Uh, what happens in our lives always bleeds into other a- aspects of our lives. But nevertheless, I need to just paint that picture for you before we read this section. This morning, we are in our Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm starting this week in verse 12. Uh, I have that passage up there, but if you have your Bible or you have your app, follow along as God's Word is read. All things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are, uh, are, are, all, all are, uh, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin in a person 
a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Lord, we ask you to open our minds to this passage today, and our lives for that matter, and we ask that there, if, if there's any corrective that's needed within us, that you would be offering that to us today. Let us have right thinking in this area. We know that would please you. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The passage deals with sexual immorality as a broad topic, and specifically as prostitution, as it was practiced in that city, as maybe one of the topics that the church was dealing with. The church may have found it very easy to just be a part of the society and go to that temple of Aphrodite, uh, or maybe they were just part of the city and they said, you know, the free sexual ethic that's in the city, well, that's, that's also freedom that we have to exercise ourselves. And so let's follow along in the central command of Paul in this passage. The central command goes like this. That temple of Aphrodite is a den of iniquity. We need to boycott that thing. We need to uh, have petitions we sign against it. We need to burn that thing to the ground if we can. Is that what Paul says? No, actually, he doesn't say that. Paul's entire emphasis is not about that temple or that temple and its practices. It's all about the corrective needed for the church. The church is his aim. The church is meant to be this group of individuals that act differently than the rest of the society. And so his, his, his motivation is not to stop that group. It's to help the church be the church. And so again, I need to remind you that this passage today is for the church. <laughs> we are not in a society that's going to find the sexual ethics described by God in the scriptures to be something that they want to practice. And so again, we're saying this, this passage today, this is not one we're going to preach to the whole world because the whole world, they don't have even the energy or the appetite or even the spiritual uh, direction to be able to follow it. This is something for the church and we know that we are going to always be countercultural in this message. We know that today we generally live in a hookup culture. It's a culture in which uh, any, any kind of sexual promiscuity is usually overlooked or, or promoted in many ways. And by the way, this is not a new trend. It's something that's been going on for a long time. And there are examples so many that, uh, you know, they, they would be easy to find. This week, I was listening to an oldies radio station. And one of the songs that came out reminded me of just the fact that this has been going on a long time. I think this was a 60s song that came on. And the 60s song was Mrs. Jones. Mrs. Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones. Dun, dun, dun. We got a thing going on. Did it, did it. You remember that one? I, I, I mean, I had fun kind of listening to it, but I, I dialed in. It was about an adulterous relationship, it was about an affair. And the glories of the affair. The song goes on. And what we have is much too strong to let it go now. So, I mean, he's just into this song and into this relationship. And, you know, again, this is not a recent song. I mean, this is not this last year. This is a 40-year-old song now. 
And it, you know, it, it, it's still in vogue, and, and that notion is still in vogue in our culture. And, and, and so again, for us to go preach this passage to our culture, it, it, there's just no ears for it. But that's where, where Paul starts and not where I want to start today. I want to again talk to the church. We march to a different drumbeat, and we face a world in which they're going to say our view is very narrow, narrow-minded. Uh, we will be the butt of jokes. We will be branded even as dangerous because of the fact that we don't promote promiscuity. I mean, we, so we'll be branded as dangerous because of that simple fact, and we need to sign up for that. Uh, let me give you an example of that. New York Times headline just this week. Here it is. How, abstinence, how an abstinence pledge in the 90s shamed a generation of evangelicals. And this article is all about the 90s and a time in which there were a, it was very common in, in our culture for especially individuals in the church to uh, promote purity among their kids to offer uh, purity balls, as it were, in which kids would come, uh, lady, young ladies would come with their dads to a ball, uh, maybe purity rings, purity pledges for both boys and girls that basically says, hey, we want you to wait until marriage uh, in order to have, have this intimate act of sex. And I saw that New York Times article this week, and I was like, uh, do they think that the 90s were somehow special for the church and the 90s discovered that the, the marriage was the, the context for uh, intimate relationships of sex? Because that's actually historic Christianity. That's, been the, the, that's taught in the Bible and it's been historic Christianity for centuries now. It's not something that was discovered in the 90s and it's not something the church should have ever jettisoned. But that's the view, again, of the world is that there was this narrow time in the 90s where we did something really wacky and, uh, you know, we're paying some price for it now. Again, they had a few people that said they, they somehow felt shame because they were told that they couldn't have sex and therefore they uh, had some psychological issues. I was kind of like, well, what about all the people that benefited from this? You know, they're, they're kind of not mentioned there. So again, I, my whole point in saying this today to you is that again, we are marching to a different drumbeat, and I realize that today's message, when viewed from a societal standpoint, is you know, very much out of step. There is a unique connection between our bodies and our sexual lives. And Paul urges us to have that right view between those correlations. And there's that correlation again between those, those actions of our bodies and the way that they work, as well as the, their expression in, in sexuality. And I want to explore that correlation today in three ways. Let's do that by opening the scriptures. The first way that there's a correlation between our bodies and sexual practices is around freedom. It's around freedom. And you'll notice in verse 12, I have it there, all things are lawful for me. And I should have put quotes around that because if you look in your scriptures, if you look in your Bible or you look in your app, there's quotes around that sentence. And there's not quotes in that are in the original Greek but the translators said, you know what? We think that that's probably a quote that was happening in the Corinthian society or perhaps in the Corinthian church. And I think they're right. That was a quote that the church was saying over and over again. Well, you know, all things are lawful for us. And so they were saying that as a way of saying, basically, we're free to do whatever we want. And let's face it, freedom for most Americans is a very sacred thing. It's something that we all really want. I love this quote that is from Brendan Byrne. He says this, The great fact of the Christian faith is not that it makes a man free to sin, but that it makes a man free not to sin. 
That's, that's our great freedom. Our great freedom is not that we get to do whatever we want. Our great freedom is that we have the freedom now. We're no longer slaves to sin. So we now have the freedom not to sin. We have the freedom to glorify God. So Paul says, I want to therefore place two limits for you, church, upon that freedom that you have. You may see, say, all things are possible for me or all things are uh, free for me to do. But there's two limits I want to place on that. And these are the two limits. But not all things are helpful. And but, not, but, I, but I will not be dominated by anything. Those are the two limits. And let's explore each one of those as it as surrounds this idea of freedom. Paul says, first of all, I don't have license to injure or to somehow hurt other individuals. So he's saying that's one of my limits is that I don't do anything that others would not find beneficial. If it's hurtful to somebody else, then it's out of bounds for me in my practice. Let me give you an example that perhaps is not related to uh, sexual intimacy. Uh, it's related just to, to a kind of a story I thought up. Let's say, for instance, that I had my, my land, my property, and I wanted it to be ultra, ultra safe from thieves and ultra safe from individuals that maybe would want to do harm to me or my property. And so I said, I'm going to put up razor wire around the perimeter of my property. And I, I want to also help at night. So I'm going to have these floodlights that come on at, you know, at any kind of motion. And they make the, the, my whole backyard look like it's noontime, but it's midnight. And so I'm going to put these lights up. But then I have a neighbor that says, well, I've got this little girl. And, you know, honestly, when she's out to play, I'm afraid she's going to get in your razor wire and get hurt. And furthermore, wow, whenever the squirrel goes across the yard at 10 o'clock, there's all this light that pours into our house and it wakes us up. So, you know, what's going on here? Well, there's a good example of I have the freedom to do that, right? Well, yeah, I do, but my freedom is not to, the dam to be for the damage or the harm of somebody else. And so there's some limits, as it were, to my freedom. He also says this, I will not be dominated by anything. Some translators have used the words mastery or addicted. So he's saying I won't be mastered by anything else. I can't use my freedom so that it actually becomes slavery to me. That's something that I cannot do. Anything that would be a master over me is now negating why my one true master. And my one true master is the Lord. And so I don't, uh, I don't avail myself to anything that is going to ultimately have mastery over my life. Sex can easily turn into something that masters us. And for many men and increasing numbers of women today, pornography is that area. It's something that has mastery over them. And at first you think, well, I actually have control of this. But then when you try to stop, you realize you really can't. And if that is you today, or you've struggled in that area, I'd like to encourage you to do a couple of things. First of all, I'd like to encourage you to tell somebody. To tell a close friend, maybe a husband or a wife, to tell a mom or a dad. And that by itself is a huge step, and one that makes everybody very nervous if that's an area where you're struggling. The other thing is, find a good counselor that deals in this area and you know, specializes really in sexual addiction and specifically even pornography. And I've got a list of some, area, uh, some therapists in the area that specialize in that. And then number three, join a group of other, other people that are saying we're marching this out together. And you'll find a great group of people that will be support in a very healthy way. 
Uh, again, I've walked with a lot of people in this area, and it's just, you know, it's one that's so common to us, and, you know, it's something that, you know, is in the church, and so it's one that we don't want to trifle with, and we want to make sure that we're taking that seriously, because, again, it's serious to the Lord of the way that we're using our freedom, and that nothing has mastery over us. Maybe this is a good time to say, <laughs> God has a very high view of sex. Uh, it's part of creation. We are meant to be sacri- uh, sexual beings, and we have that sexuality around certain things that are sacred. It's certain boundaries around this act that make it a sacred act. Maybe this is a good way for me to explain that. If you're making computer chips, you need a certain environment to make those computer chips. You can't make computer chips in the garage today because it's just got too many things that would contaminate the making of computer chips. Computer chips are only made today in ultra-clean environments, clean rooms, in which the air is filtered multiple times and all the particles are just purged from the room so that you can do something as delicate as making computer chips. That's the way that God is saying sex is, is best experienced. Within these boundaries of safety, of love, of commitment, of purity, and he's saying that's the environment, that's the clean room environment that I want for you and he's saying that's the, that's the environment in which this sacred act is best experienced. And so we put some boundaries, as it were, around our freedom. I love this quote from F.F. F. Bruce. He says this, Because sex reflects the most intimate of interpersonal relations among humans, it should be reserved for the most permanent of interpersonal commitments. And again, that's historic Christianity, and that's the view that... that churches should all be taking today is that that's how sacred an act this is and that's the the bounds of the freedom that we would put upon it all right the second correlation between sex and our bodies is around urges and i want to again have you note that verse 13 in your bibles again i should have put quotes around it here because there's quotes in your bible around it Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's another saying that the Corinthian church was using. They were saying, well, you know that the food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. Those two go together. And so they were using this as a euphemism for sex. They were comparing the body and or the stomach and food to the sexual act and saying these are exactly the same. There's a hunger, as it were, for both of those and a hunger that's meant to be exercised. It might be the equivalent of saying today, if it feels good, do it. Uh, you know, Paul says again here, hey, hold on a second. We've got to be careful with this because God is above our urges and God is even greater than our urges. And he says here in the scriptures that, God is going to destroy both the stomach and food. What does he mean by that? Paul is likely talking about our resurrected bodies, and our resurrected bodies are going to operate differently than our earthly bodies. The body still matters, but some of the functions of the way that the body operates after we're dead and we get that new body may be different, and some of the plumbing, as it were, of of food and stomach uh, may be different than the way we experience it right now, I don't really know what that will look like. I don't, I don't pretend to, to be able to explain that in totality. But that's Paul's argument, is that the body still matters even if food and the stomach are negated or they're out of the picture. And what he's telling us again here is, that's very true about our sex lives too, is that, that God is above them. And we are reporting to God in that matter. And again, sexual immorality affects our bodies in a lot different ways than overeating does. And so he's saying, those two are a disconnect, and let's not mix up those two. 
Paul has this big section in which he says, this, the body is meant, not meant for sexual immorality, but it's meant for the Lord. And the, we're the, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. And so again, we are one with the Lord and we are meant to operate our bodies so that they are in, in, in walking with the Lord and in conjunction with the Lord. And our hunger is not the thing that drives us as much as it is our desire to honor the Lord. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual work of service. So again, our bodies are the, the instruments that God uses for his glory. All right, number three, the third correlation between sex and our bodies is around unions. Uh, Starts in verse 15 here, and he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Paul says that the union of Jesus is with us, And if we were to join in the intimate union uh, uh, with a a prostitute, in essence, we are joining uh, that prostitute with Jesus through us. And so he's saying, you know, may that never be. That's not something that would ever be done. And so we don't don't pursue that linking, as it were. He also says that every time we are involved in a sexual union, it's a special union that has long-lasting effects. Let me, get it, let me put it this way. Um, you know that there's a passport that you have for any time you travel to another country. And every time you come through immigration, boom, they stamp your passport. And you now have a little history, as it were, of all the different countries that you've entered. Well, Paul is saying our unions with somebody else, our sexual unions with somebody else, are kind of like that stamp of passport, but it's on our soul. And that lasts with us. All of those last with us. And he's saying those unions are not just ones to trifle with because they're sacred and they have a a, a long-lasting effect upon our bodies. Paul says it this way. He says, every time you are in union with somebody, you are declaring we are one flesh. We are one flesh. And if that's not true, if it's not true that you're really one flesh, then you're making a lie out of that. Where does Paul get that from? That's all the way back into Genesis. And Adam and Eve are the first ones that God makes, and they're the first married couple. They are individuals who are now going to be the prototype of everybody to come. And Paul says, as it were, you're going to leave father and mother, you're going to cleave to one another, and you're going to become one flesh. And so he's saying, if you are having sex with somebody that's not your spouse, you're lying about that. You're saying, you're declaring, as it were, that you're one flesh when you're really not. And so the true problem is intimacy without intention. The true problem is communion without commitment. And perhaps the area where we could both most understand this today is the area of living together, which is, by the way, I think become very commonplace in society, and it's also become very commonplace even in aspects of the church. In a recent poll, 70% of teens believe that it was okay to live together before marriage, and hold on to your seat, 50% of teens in the church also believe that. I've not done that poll within CCF, so I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying hey, this is worth us talking about. And again, we uh, need to address this, and there's a gal named Jennifer uh, Morse, and she wrote an article called why, why, not take your, why Not Take Her for a Test Drive? And she noted in this article that there's been a 72% increase 
in living together in just the, the last 10 years. And, you know, that's a, that's a very large increase. And, and she, she, she says it this way. I, I really love her words. She says, for many in our culture, living together before marriage has been compared to taking a car for a test drive. The trial period gives a person a chance to discover whether they're compatible after all the argument goes. Who You'd never buy a car unless you took it for a test drive. And here's the implication of the test drive metaphor. I'm going to drive you around the block a few times, withholding judgment and commitment until I can satisfy myself about you. Pay no attention to my indecision or my periodic evaluations of your performance. Try to act as if we're married so I can get a clear picture of what you're going to be like as a spouse. Unfortunately, research shows that the test drive approach is not equal to marriage. Cohabitating couples report lower levels of satisfaction in their marriage, or excuse me, in their relationship than married couples. And studies have shown that cohabitation is correlated with unhappiness and domestic violence. If a cohabiting couple ultimately marries, they have a higher percentage chance of divorce. So here's the problem with the car analogy. The car doesn't have hurt feelings if the driver dumps it back on the lot and decides not to buy it. The analogy works great if you picture yourself as the driver, but it stinks if you picture yourself as the car. Isn't that a great analogy of that? It's great if you view yourself as the test driver, but if you view yourself as the car, it's a rather uh, wooden uh, experience, one that you would not want to have for yourself or upon anybody else. Our bodies are important. Our bodies have unions that Paul says are involved with us for a lifetime and these effects of the unions can oftentimes be uh, hurtful to us if we're not careful. All right, let's go to uh, the, the, the end of this here and I, here's where I want to end. Paul says that there's this correlation in our bodies between our bodies and sex. It's around freedom, it's around urges, it's around unions. What are we to do? He ends with two commands and that's the exact place where I want to end today. One positive and one negative. Let's begin with the negative command. Paul says this, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality, he says. He says, it's time to take control of your body and the situation and move away from situations in which you may feel as though you're tempted and could somehow compromise yourself. For instance, if you go on a date, Perhaps it's not the most prudent thing to get in the back seat. That may be a thing that is a temptation and you don't need that, so you flee away from that. If you're finding a coworker to be attractive that's not your spouse, well, then you're finding reasons, plenty of reasons, not to be alone with that other person out of just the safety for yourself. Here's the deal. Satan gladly knows that this is a weapon. And it's a weapon that he can exploit and it has power over us. And that's why we don't just walk away from sexual morality, but we actually run away from it. So that's the negative, is to run away, to move away from that. Now let's move to the positive. And the positive is glorify your God, glorify God with your body. And he says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Old Testament, God says, I'm going to dwell bodily in one location. It's the Holy of Holies within the temple. That's the place I'm going to reside with my presence. And Jesus comes along, Jesus dies, and the temple is, the curtains in the temple are split in two. And that's metaphoric for saying the Spirit is now, God's presence now is being spilled out. 
And the New Testament teaches very clearly, Jesus teaches very clearly, that there's now a new residence for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is saying, I'm going to dwell within those people that are my believers, my followers. And God's saying something brand new. I'm going to reside there, and that's going to become my active place of, inter, uh, of interrelationship as well as communion with my people, and you're going to become priests now of not a physical place, but priests of God in your everyday lives. And so he's saying, uh, that's what I want you to do. I want you to become like my previous place in a temple. Your body's going to be the place of worship and sacrifice and prayer and communion and those are all implements now. Your bodies are implements for this high purpose of what I'm doing. And that's the way that I'm going to demonstrate myself to the world around me. Once it was through this temple, now is through my people and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in their lives. That's why your body is so sacred. Let me close here. I realize in a room this size, and for those listening online, that uh, most of us, if not all of us, have ultimately failed in this area at some point. <laughs> if you look back over the span of your life, at some point, you've made a misstep here. And I would include myself in that category. This is the point at which I really remind you that we have a God of grace, we have a God of love. We have a God who says, man, am I ready to forgive for true repentance? And true repentance always has this, this wonderful act of not just, not just cleansing us, but correcting us, putting us onto a new path that's a healthier path for us and a healthier path for the whole church. And so today, if you need to confess something to the Lord, just know that He is ready and willing and able to step forward into that and to offer that forgiveness to you and that, that new path that we all need. Let's honor our bodies as instruments of of uh, righteousness to God. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and we live our lives, especially in relationship to the way that we practice our sexual being, in honor to our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I'm lifting uh, all those listening today to you and um, we all have need of cleansing and forgiveness. Um, Lord, whether it's been years ago or it's been just recently, if we've erred in this way, Satan has a way of whispering in our ear of what failures we are. And today, Lord, we want to remind ourselves that with you all things are possible, and with you we're more than conquerors. And so we ask you today, Lord, to guide us, forgive us, put us back on the right path if we're on a wrong path. And for all of us, Lord, just impress within us what sacred beings we are, and as a result of that, the sacred acts we have, especially as it relates to our sexual lives. Lord, we love you. Today, we want to honor you, and we want to do that by worshiping you with, with our bodies. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.